I see Kathleen is attending. Uh, thanks for thanks for joining us, Kathleen. And a big welcome to our live audience for Digital Health Investor Talk. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm, and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, trade sales, and strategic alternatives. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Stephen Wardell. Our show today is on what's next in age tech. Uh, our guest is Max Zamko. Max is the editor in chief of age tech news and the managing partner of third act ventures. You can follow him at LinkedIn slash in slash Mzamco. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called digital health investor talk. You can subscribe on Apple and Spotify. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. First off, here's the format for our show. It's 90 minutes long and Max and I will spend the first half discussing the news and the macro picture and some other topics. Then in the second half, we'll focus on, on the topic of the show, which is what's, what's next in HTech. After that, and throughout that, we'll be taking call-ins from our audience. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register for an account on call-in. Um, to register, you can go to the call-in social podcasting app in your app store or the callin.com page and create an account. Um, once you've registered, you can use the text chat um, or you can even press the call-in button to speak. Uh, so welcome to the show, Max. Thank you so much, Stephen. Happy to be here. And can you give us a, a little deeper introduction to yourself? Sure, happy to. Um, so as you mentioned, I am the editor-in-chief of Age Tech News, which is a news site that, surprise, surprise, chronicles age tech, uh, specifically financings and exits. It really started as a email newsletter I was sending to get more investors interested in the field. Um, and it's kind of grown from there into a fully fledged site, which is really exciting. You can find that at agetech.news, very easy. Um, and then my other position is as managing partner of Third Act Ventures, which is a seed stage age tech specific venture firm. Uh, we've invested in over 38 companies so far. Um, we'll be investing in another 60 or so in the next four years. Um, and we, you know, invest all across age tech. So, you know, we're going to talk more about digital health today. That's great. Also, a lot of things that are not digital health, like fintech, um, end of life planning, all sorts of things, which we'll, we'll get to later. But excited to be here. That's great. Wonderful. Well, so uh, our first topic is macro news. And I tend to look at macro news from the perspective of the innovation economy, which is uh, which is young company leaders and investors. Uh, and so I guess the first topic in macro news is war in the Middle East. Um, so as, as I mentioned last week, you know, this is a very sad, very distressing uh, topic. And uh, you know, and you know, Israel was uh, attacked uh, in a very barbaric way, and now we're facing the prospect of of war. Um, and uh, and so, uh, with this issue, um, I think that from from the U.S. digital health innovation economy perspective, uh, what this heralds is a couple things. It means that there's there's more uncertainty about the future, about the economy in the future, about security in the future. Um, 
there certainly could be higher oil prices in the future. And just as, as one scenario there, um, the war could expand and could involve Iran, for example, and Iran's a major oil producer. Um, and uh, next, inflation. Um, and and we, we could, we, with higher oil prices, with, with spending bills on, on replenishing munitions and things like that, um, you could see inflation start to spike up again. Uh, so, and each of these is bad news for the investor economy. So uncertain future is bad news, inflation, bad news for the investor economy. So uh, I think that if you cycle back a month ago, people were kind of hoping that raising interest rates had tamed inflation. And that meant that rates could come down again, although the Fed was, was being cautious, giving any signal of, of rates coming down again. Um, and so I think we, we, that we may have to recalculate that. That could see inflation go up and then the Fed possibly raise rates further. It's, it's not clear. Well, anyway, uh, Max, do, do you have any thoughts on, uh, on that? I think the other interesting question is, you know, what happens and, and what are all the Israeli-based startups doing? And Israel has been known to be a, a startup nation, I think is the, the name of the book all about it. Um, and there are a lot of really interesting startups that have been founded, are being founded uh, in Israel and, and often entering the U.S. and European markets. What happens to them? How, what, what, what happens to them during this? Uh, how does that affect their ability to continue? Um, and then, you know, thinking from an investing perspective, what does that do from a company standpoint? Um, I'm, excited. I'm about to finally see my good friend, Karen Etkin, also known as the Jaron technologist uh, for the first time since it happened next week. And so I, I'm really excited that she's safe um, and interested to hear her perspective on what's happening and how this is all affecting uh, the startup landscape over there. That's interesting. And Israel certainly punches above its weight in the world of digital health and tech in general. Um, and we had a guest on uh, a week ago who was a digital health CEO from Israel who'd moved to the U.S. Um, and he talked about the move from Europe or Israel to the U.S. Um, and what he had said, you know, most of his company is in Israel. He He's the CEO. He happens to have moved to the U.S. Uh, as part of a U.S. expansion. But, uh, you know, his message to uh, his employees was um, was just do your best. And so however, whatever that means. And so some of them have been called up into the active reserves. That meant do your best in the active reserves. Some of them were stopping work to volunteer in their community because they were needed. You know, his message was do your best there. Uh, and certain other employees felt that they had to keep this company going, you know, with as little disruption as possible. So they were doing their best to, to keep the company going with as little disruption as possible. Um, so um, uh, let's see. So. Uh, well, well thank, thank you for that, Max. Um, so then the next is, um, so uh, we, 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 we tend to follow interest rates uh, a lot. And the next FOMC meeting is coming up very soon. It's coming up November 1st. Um, and the, what's interesting is that the Fed has given us a framework, and it's a very modest framework, and we like that about how the Fed thinks about interest rates. And so um, for the last six quarters, the Fed has raised interest rates faster than at any time in American history. 
And that really shocked VCs and it caused the, the funding and liquidity issues that we have today. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and people weren't sure, what, and the Fed was doing this in reaction to, uh, to, uh, to high inflation levels. Um, and then uh, a couple months ago, the Fed chairman said that uh, we may raise rates two more times before the end of December. And so that created, and, and people interpreted that to mean raising rates by about 25 basis points each time uh, by the end of December. Although that, he was silent on that, but that was the market's interpretation. And so if that's it, then that it gives, that, that is like stopping, that's, that's close to, as close as it comes to stopping raising rates. And that's what we want to see in the innovation economies. We like to see the Fed stop raising rates because that would reduce the uncertainty that investors face that's causing investors to hold back from investing. So we're having a, an issue that I, I, I describe as that VCs have capital and are often not investing it. So you've got a swimming pool with bleachers and the CEOs are swimming in the pool and the VCs are sitting on the bleachers, not jumping in. And the CEOs are saying, come on in, the water's fine. And the VCs are not jumping in and the lead investors are not leading often. Or uh, uh, and, and the most common answer I get when I ask them is they say there's too much uncertainty. And then the number one reason for uncertainty is that interest rates were going up. Um, so my interpretation, you know, we may see the Fed raise rates. At the, and, and so after the Fed chairman said that, they then raised rates one time by 25 basis points. So by deduction, you get that the Fed may, may raise rates one more time by about 25 basis points between now and the end of the year. To have that knowledge is effective, is, is, is a very positive, to have that framework and knowledge is a very positive thing for the innovation economy because it suggests that the Fed's not going to raise rates by five more points or by some large amount uh, over the course of the next few months. So uh, I just wanted, and, so, and that, that, so that, that's a good sign. Even if the Fed at the next meeting raises rates by 25 basis points, that's still a good sign um, because, uh, because we, under, we have this better understood framework. Um, so uh, Max, any thoughts on you know, uh, interest rates and the Fed meeting coming up and whether, whether they may raise rates? Um, you know, I can't really speak on whether they raise rates or not, but what I can say is that you know, VCs, the way that they work is that they have capital that they need to deploy in a certain amount of time in investment, their investment window. Now, they can be, you know, go faster or slower depending on the level of uncertainty in the market. But, you know, certainly, you know, I was at Health a few weeks ago and been seeing a lot of deals. Like, there's still a lot of capital being allocated. I think the place where we're really seeing the crunch and that we will see it um, in the future is in VCs being able to raise additional rounds, uh, additional funds. And because now VCs are competing against, you know, much safer investments, bonds who that are returning, you know, five, six percent, whatever it is, um, versus VCs, which is much more risky. Um, and that level of uncertainty is really causing LPs, the investors in funds to hold off and wait to see how things settle. Um, and so, you know, we, we're not seeing as many new funds created. We're not seeing uh, funds uh, raise as large new funds. A lot of them actually have started reducing the amount that they intend to raise. Um, and the effects of that we'll start to see, you know, probably next year and the years following. That, that's very interesting. And, and I've heard, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, some, some similar stories such as, 
you know, there's certain leading funds in digital health that are saying we are at the same pace we were during the boom or close to it. Um, and that, so for example, we had someone from Andres Horowitz on here who, who mentioned that, but then also there are some funds that were tangential to healthcare, tangential to digital health. Uh, they might've been, you know, the corporate venture fund of a, of a, of a big tech company, for example, that wasn't particularly in healthcare, but that dabbled in, in digital health, uh, 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 investments and, and they have exited. And so when you count the number of deals, it's down. But then if you talk to leading funds, they may say, we're, we're actually not down. We're, you know, we're, we're investing at the same pace. Um, mm -hmm. so, um, uh, so next, uh, you know, I'll, I'll mention recession. So economists are debating whether we're going to go into a recession. If you cycle back a year ago, uh, pretty much universally economists were saying, Wall Street economists were saying that we'll probably see the end of an expansion, the beginning of a contraction in the last two quarters of 2023. We're in that now and, and we're not in the recession. Um, and so that has continually been pushed out and the chances of a recession uh, reduced. And so I think, you know, we had, um, uh, uh, I think Goldman Sachs reduced the chances of recession from like 50% to 15% in the next few quarters. Um, uh, and so that, that's good news. So as in the innovation economy, we definitely don't like recessions. Uh, recessions cause our product buyers um, to feel poor and to stop buying products from us. And so that creates a much tougher environment. Um, although sometimes you can get uh, uh, employees, you can get talent at a, you know, sort of more reasonably priced, better access to more reasonably priced talent. That, that comes along with recessions as well. Um, any thoughts on, are you seeing any signs that we're headed for a recession or we're clearly not headed for a recession? You know, honestly, I can't really comment on that. I, I keep my head pretty focused in the, in the age tech and digital health world. It doesn't feel like we're nearing that. Um, it feels like we're more likely to start coming out of whatever you want to call this. If this wasn't a recession, then I'm not sure what it was. Um, but, you know, it, it feels a lot more like we're nearing the turning point um, where things hopefully start to get a little bit better. Uh, things start to ease up. Interest rates hopefully go back down a little bit, but we'll see. So then uh, IPO window, we, we track the IPO window uh, and there's a lot of companies that would like to IPO. There's tech unicorns, there's digital health unicorns, and the IPO window is shut and has been shut for seven quarters. Um, uh, and one of the, the reasons that the IPO window can be important is that there's certain kinds of rounds like Series C, crossover, IPO, where there's timing put on them, like you're getting your Series C and you're expected to go public if all goes well, you know, three years later or crossover, you're expected to go public in less than a year. Um, uh, and then those deals don't get done if there's no line of sight to actually going public. Um, uh, and, that, and that creates illiquidity across the entire capital chain. And in addition, if you have a big successful IPO in digital health, then some of those investors can can harvest that money and put it back into new funds, new new venture funds. Uh, and so this isn't happening because the IPO window is closed. So unfortunately, what we're seeing is that there were a couple valiant attempts at opening the, the IPO window. So the way that works is you have a very high quality company and it, and it actually goes public in an adverse environment. Um, and then they, they tend to price the company at about 15% below peers. Um, and then the stock goes out and then it rises about 15%. Um, and then if it stays up, everyone celebrates and now the IPO window is open. 
Um, and, uh, and so you want a tech company to do that, and then all the tech unicorns will go out. And then you want a digital health company to do that, and then all the digital health unicorns will go out. Um, right. And so we thought- Financial engineering. Price it, price it below, let it go to what it, what it normally should be at, and then celebrate that. It's very funny. Yeah. Well, and, and the story behind that actually is that the underwriters um, want the whole process to be a success from before it goes public to during and after and supporting it after. And they believe the way for it to be a success is for it to be overwhelmingly bought by the world's best mutual funds. So that's like Fidelity and BlackRock. And they get them to, to sort of promise, it may not be written, but to promise to buy and hold. Um, and so the reward for buying and holding is that they price it at under uh, what what appears would trade at. Uh, and so then that tempts the portfolio manager at BlackRock to then eagerly say, I'll do it or whatever. Now, nobody knows what actually happens. So it could go up, it could go down. If it goes down and the BlackRock guy sells, that's a disaster because um, they were counting on them holding. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and so, and, and in general, and if that, happens, then that bank won't bring future deals and allow future allocations from that portfolio manager who sold. Um, uh, and so that kind of keeps them honest. And, and in a good environment, most of these go up, some go down, uh, and they they stick, they generally stick to their agreements if, if they want you know more pie in the future. Um, so that's some of the thinking behind that. Um, uh, and uh, so, but what's actually happened is some disappointments. So, um, you know, we had ARM is is down instead of up. Uh, and I think Birkenstock, for some reason that was considered to be a bellwether is down instead of up. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, and, um, and, so, and so they have not, and so what that means is that we're, we're reassessing, but nobody is calling this an opening of the window or or you know a hot IPO market. So, uh, a Boston Globe story by Ryan Gould said that the U.S. IPO market is teetering on the edge um, uh, after the fall class disappoints. Um, uh, he said so. This is disappointing for us because we'd like to see digital health unicorns go out, and we'd like to see um, liquidity return to the to the capital food chain. Um, so uh, it also. Boston Globe reports IPO candidates are putting their plans on hold. So the examples they gave is that uh, KKR-backed BrightSpring Health Services is is said to be mulling a delay in its IPO, and Waystar Holdings, which is in revenue cycle management in in healthcare, is actually said to be continuing its plans for an IPO, which could be evaluated at eight billion dollars. So one's delaying and one's going ahead. Uh, uh, and uh, so that's um, so, so that, that, that's disappointing. Um, uh, and then uh, I, I like to cite that there was a report by um, uh, by PitchBook that said that digital health unicorns that are spoken of as likely to try to go out include Noom, Row, Everly Health, Quant, and Quantum. So those are some of the ones that. We're hearing, you know, maybe, and this is a, it's a semi-secret process. If companies are are thinking of IPOing, um, in general, they they don't like the idea that there's expectations they will, and then they don't. That would be considered to be a sort of a public failure. They don't want to experience that, and so they, they they're cagey about what they're what they're really going to do. But pretty much any company that's had money in it for ten years, which is a lot, a lot of them in digital health, want, and 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 could IPO, 
wants to IPO because they want because because they have investors who who need that money back to be able to mark returns. So, um, any thoughts about the the IPO window? I mean, I I think it's just so interesting and such short term thinking in general. Um, the success or, or failure is defined by like the first few weeks of whether it goes up or down. Now, the reason to go public is, as you said, like investors need uh, to return that capital to their LPs. That's part of their, their thesis. Um, and it gets liquidity for everyone else in the value chain and early employees, especially who probably haven't been able to sell majority or any of their shares up until then and probably holding a lot of their net worth in it. You know, I, I really wish Wall Street and these companies would think a little more, more long term and not worry so much about whether it pops or or it doesn't in the first few days, because what matters is a long term. Like you think about where Google, Facebook, all these companies started. Some of them popped, some of them didn't. Um, but what matters is where they've built to. And, and that I think is the more telling of success than than the beginning. So I wish the companies would just do it um, and stop being so afraid. But you're talking about millions, if not billions of dollars uh, difference in like where it initially prices. So I understand the desire to try to maximize that return. Yeah, thank you. And uh, also very interesting from our comments, uh, Mike remarks that uh, he's hearing that Omada Hinge, Verta, Kindbody, also thinking of going public. You know, that, that that's really interesting. Certainly, those are some you know some bellwether names. I would say some out, outstanding uh, digital health companies. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's interesting to hear uh, who's who's thinking of it. You know, right now. Um, and uh, again, you know, I think the way to think about this is um, uh, is you want to see in. Digital health, the street tends to think of most digital health companies as tech companies. Therefore, we want to see a tech company go public and do well. And then, and then more tech unicorns that are not quite as high quality or a little riskier will then follow that and do well. And then digital health unicorns can go out and do well. Uh, and there's also a saying that what, from the moment that your board tells you to, to, to spend money to begin to IPO, it probably takes about nine months to get ready. Um, uh, and so uh, we're looking for that moment. And, and based on the performance of IPOs this fall, boards are not telling CEOs to spend money to get ready to IPO right now. Um, so um, let's see. So the next is, um, uh, so now moving on to industry reports. So um, I didn't see any reports. I usually report on the Rock Health reports and a few other reports. I didn't see any of those uh, drop this past week. Um, Max, any, any thoughts on, um, on reports you've seen? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure this counts as a report so much as a observation and I get deeply researched observation by Christina Farr, who was a journalist and then in the last, I believe, year or two moved over to the venture side at Omer's and really looking at health tech valuations, especially over the past few years and how VCs really need to be resetting their expectations, um, not expecting everyone to be a unicorn. There's been this huge bubble in the last few years, especially during COVID, of higher and higher valuations for all these companies. And 
we saw some exit and have lots of billion dollar outcomes, but there are only a few handfuls of those companies that exist or will exist, but VCs have been pumping money into hundreds, thousands, expecting that they all can make it. Um, and so she remarked how there are actually a lot of smaller exits, you know, centaurs, which means hundreds of millions, and even ones in the tens of millions that have been happening that go generally unreported because they're not the big unicorn outcomes, but actually end up being quite successful, especially for early, uh, early investors. Um, and that she argues that there should be a, a reset towards being able to take advantage of these and return good money to your investors and funds that way. That's certainly something that we've always believed in um, and continue to. So it was, it was nice to hear it echoed in, in her article. That, that's interesting. And, and there's, a, there's a continued, there's an evolving critique of venture in digital health. Um, so, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the category has really exploded since 2009. 2009 was the end of the global financial crisis and the beginning of the Fed's zero interest rate policy. And that zero interest rate, it caused major investors around the world to want to increase their allocation to growth, including technology and healthcare, and to U.S. equities. And so there were digital health VC firms uh, who, were, who were in the, you know, they're sort of in a triple halo situation of being in the U.S., in healthcare, and in technology. Uh, and they raised big funds and invested in it. And we're still living through that cycle. Um, and, but there's a, there's a evolving critique, which is that, um, which says that you're just not going to see the same kind of unicorns as you would see in B2B and B2C in digital health. Um, uh, and that therefore you have to think of investing differently. Um, and the fundamental reasons are number one is that everything costs more because you have to solve a technology problem and a healthcare problem and hire the people to hire different professionals to do that. Um, and then everything takes longer because this is a more complex problem. So it could take twice as long to solve the problem, to build the product. Um, and then uh, products don't scale as well. Uh, uh, so uh, the buyers are bad at buying technology. And when you sell to one hospital, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to sell the same product to the next hospital. Um, and that's, and uh, so, uh, and, th and then another critique and because, because, you know, the, the reputation is that buyers of tech in healthcare are so bad at buying technology, unlike B2B and B2C, um, that you would actually uh, seek a technology-enabled services model. In other words, instead of trying to sell tech to a provider, um, you be the provider, and then you implement the tech that the, that the other providers are failing to buy. Um, so those are some of the interesting critiques that I've, I've heard. And, and I think uh, Christina's article, um, uh, which is at... Um, well, what is it? it's it's second opinion on Substack, Christina Farr. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a, exactly. Uh, and uh, that, that I think that that's a useful contribution to that debate. So, um, and then for our audience, do do any of you um, have any reports that came out this week uh, that that you want us to comment on or 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 you know uh, plug to our audience that that said something important this week? So. So then we'll move on to um, news and trade journal stories and that sort of thing. And also for our audience, uh, if there's any news stories you want us to react to, feel free to put that in the chat as well. We'll, we'll see that. Um, uh, and so um, 
you know, so first of all, there continues to be few fundraise announcements uh, this past week, and there seems to be more belt tightening and shutdown announcements than fundraises. So that 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 is that's always difficult for morale. Um, uh, and then uh, uh, Cranes, uh, New York Business Magazine, published an article today saying that by their count, uh, New York area digital health funding reached a record low in the third quarter. So I think that's everyone thinks that it's been low for um, for several quarters now, for six quarters now. I don't think anyone thought that last quarter, which was third, you know, which was third quarter, um, was record low. So that that's I thought that that was interesting. I, I would not have expected New York to be record low for the quarter ending ending in September. Um, so um, and then but then also some some good news. Uh, OrbiMed, which is an out, outstanding uh, mainstream venture fund, just announced it had raised four point three billion across three funds. Um, uh, and so uh, and so OrbiMed has backed Taito Care and Carrot Fertility and Dario Health and others. Um, and so I was glad to see this because this is, is news that top funds, top fund families are succeeding in raising next funds. Um, and uh, so, uh, but uh, as recently as the summer, many funds were saying that literally that the market to raise money from LPs in the U.S. is dead. You know, so some people were saying that causing big problems for fund families that want to raise a next fund. Um, but here we have OrbiMed successfully raising across three funds, including you know a digital health fund. Um, so that that that's a a positive sign of of activity in the market. So, um, uh, Max, any any thoughts on on this news or or interpretation or opinion? I mean, I think it. I'm really happy for OrbiMed. I don't think that that is representative. I think they ha it's really impressive they were able to do that. Um, in this funding climate. Um, and, you know, as you were saying, like funds are complaining that LP interest is dead. I think that is more of what we're seeing across funds. Um, and again, that will have follow on effects in the next few years. Great. So next, um, uh, a Japanese digital health startup called Ubie uh, launched this past week um, as a Gen AI company um, uh, with a product that summarizes detailed patient data, including um, uh, transcribing and summarizing interview with patient data for doctors. So this is obviously a time saver. Um, and I, I bring this up because there's been an enormous hype in the US for, uh, for three quarters now about generative AI and large language models. Um, uh, and there are companies that, that have gotten funded, but I haven't seen that many products launched in healthcare. Um, I have seen a lot of, of informed speculation about where a products would be successful. And there was even sort of a, I'll, I'll say, I'll call it, uh, you know, there's some wry commentary that a place that generative AI could be very successful in healthcare is, is in billing. Um, and so I, I call that rye because that could be a real area, but nevertheless, people in digital health tend to want to change the world and cure disease. And, and, you know, uh, and so to hear that generative AI may make its big impact in billing, um, you know, was, was a little ironic, uh, there, but here we see, and uh, others have said that it would be in live note-taking, 
but, but I haven't seen a product for that yet. So uh, a doctor is talking to a patient and speaking aloud to the AI agent, and the AI agent is is processing everything in terms of, of records and new orders and new prescriptions and that sort of thing. But this is one that's, that's taking uh, collected information and summarizing it uh, for doctors. So I just thought that this is a Japanese interpretation of where to use generative AI in healthcare. I thought, I thought that was really interesting. Um, uh, and then uh, XR Health, which is an Israeli virtual reality health tech company um, that, uh, that has software for virtual reality headsets for healthcare purposes, uh, they announced that they distributed hundreds of VR headsets to 30 healthcare centers across Israel to help patients who are struggling with PTSD, anxiety, and stress. And so I bring this story up because this is, um, this is very interesting. And, and first of all, I think that we actually are living in the land of tomorrow because here's a story about a Japanese startup with generative AI and an Israeli startup with a virtual reality headset. Um, so we, we finally arrived at, at, in Tomorrowland. Um, but I thought, I thought that was uh, you know, a very interesting um, use of, of VR headsets uh, and where um, you, know, you, you, you sort of enter a calm world in a VR headset and it can help you with meditation and breathing and relaxing uh, and uh, and go, going through a program, an immersive program, um, uh, and so this is, this could be a very good um, uh, use of this product. So, any thoughts on, on those two announcements? Um, you know, what I'll say is, you know, walking around the health show floor, I saw a lot of generative AI LLM products that people were at in various stages of launching. Most of them you know, in that startup area quite early. Uh, and a lot of them, as you said, going after uh, billing, claims management, um, other other areas that, as you said, are not as sexy, certainly, as, you know, solving the next cancer. Uh, but uh, that really make a lot of sense for where generative AI can start to really make a difference. That's great. Uh, also, in the world of Tomorrowland, um, Amazon Pharmacy just announced they are rolling out drone delivery service in College Station, Texas. So customers of Amazon Pharmacy can now have their medication delivered to their front door by drone within 60 minutes of ordering it, and delivery is free. Um, and there's 500 medications at Amazon that are eligible for delivery by drone. Um, so th this is really interesting, and you know, th this sounds incredibly futuristic. Um, uh, and I, I think, by, by the way, um, so there's a secret in the world of CVS and Walgreens, which is that they really want you to come into the store and then walk through the entire convenience store to the back where the pharmacy is and, and uh, ask your order to be filled and then hang out in the store for 15 minutes or 30 minutes and then pick up your order or leave and come back and walk through the whole store again. That's really important to them because they want you to buy a chocolate bar or some shampoo on the way. Um, and it's interesting that Amazon uh, doesn't have a pharmacy attached to a convenience store, but they do have a supermarket that's not a pharmacy. Um, uh, but, uh, and so, 
this was an opening for Amazon to do this. I thought that's very clever strategically for Amazon to do this. And they've been very interested in pharmacy for a long time. Um, uh, and uh, I also, uh, I, I'm curious if anyone knows, there's gotta be some sort of regulation allowing them to do this because um, uh, in general with drones, um, you're, you're the person controlling the drone needs to be able to see the drone. Um, that, that, that's a, a standard regulation for using drones. And so there must be new regulations I'm less familiar with that allow a drone to leave and fly several blocks uh, or, or further uh, and drop something off to someone. Um, but in general, they have to stay low and the user has to see them um, or they're considered to be not safe. Uh, and so, but if, if, there, if that law is now ironed out, we could see um, uh, drone delivery in a lot of areas and drugs are probably the single best area to think of drone delivery because they're high value and low weight um, and, and low bulk. Uh, so any thoughts on that, on this, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I thought this was so novel. I thought I had to talk about this. So, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's fun. Um, Amazon's been talking about drone delivery for a long time, you know, here in the U S I think it's going to, there are a lot of regulatory hurdles that it's going to need to get through for it to become a commonplace thing. You know, the most interesting place where we're seeing drones being used effectively is really in Africa. You know, there's a company that is delivering blood to rural hospitals via drone. Um, so they have a centralized blood bank. A rural hospital says we need a bag of O negative. They launch this drone that flies there, drops it in this like landing area um, and is able to really save lives. So I think there's definitely a lot of potential. I think it's kind of fun. Um, Amazon's been playing in the pharmacy game for, you know, a while. They bought PillPack, you know, almost a decade ago, I want to say. Um, you know, they, they know what they're doing. And they don't, as you said, they don't care about whether you come into the store or not because their model is works. It's people <laughs> like the service and go back online and keep buying because it's just the easiest place and it has almost everything. Um, so it's it's definitely fun and We'll see how fast it's able to roll out, but I wouldn't mind getting things delivered by drone. Like it sounds great. I don't have to leave my house for even more things. That's excellent. So then we have a question from someone in the audience, um, which is how are privacy laws expected to affect any all of the digital health startups, especially the AI and Gen AI LLM ones? We're seeing more companies try to create exclusive curated data sets for their models. This may get harder when patients start requesting data provenance and transparency. So th this is really interesting, and, and it gets to that um, you could think of, of generative AI and large language models as that there's, there's, there's data, which may be proprietary data. Then there's the large language uh, engine that, that, that runs that data. And then there's the app that does something useful. Um, and many people are arguing, and I think I agree, that the large language model engine, which we're all looking at right now with OpenAI having built a particularly good one, um, that may have no value in the future. There may be many of those, and they're competing, they, they, they compete their value to zero uh, over time. Then there's the data and proprietary data. And suddenly, all over the world, proprietary data sets are skyrocketing in value. So if you have um, you know, val validated medical information, like for example, UpToDate, which is owned by Walters Kluwer and which is used by doctors and has medical editors and has and is, and is very comprehensive as a, a sort of a medical encyclopedia. 
that just suddenly became incredibly valuable and you want to make sure that nobody's stealing it and you and then you want to be able to you know maybe if large language models are cheap you you develop your own or you or you get a cheap licensing of one and now um as walter's cluer um you you that data became more valuable um, and then there's the the app on top you could have a proprietary app that does things but so i think we're going to see um uh, and uh, the early ai systems have apparently uh, uh, stolen all their data. Um, so uh, some of them took a lot of data from Twitter. Some of them took a lot of data from Reddit. Uh, and, uh, and you'll notice that the, the first mover was OpenAI, which theoretically had no value. And so if it stole all this data, then it could get sued and it's not gonna lose you know, trillions of dollars. Um, but if Apple or, or Amazon or Google had made the first move, then, then their corporate assets could have been liable to be sued, but OpenAI did it as a startup. Um, and uh, so there's gonna be some sort of, uh, of um, reckoning here um, where people who've had their data used, so Reddit and Twitter come to mind, many others um, are going to sue and say, you know, I either, you know, need, you know, I, this needs to stop or I need to get paid for, for ongoing use or for, and for past use uh, as well. Um, and so there'll be, and then there's gonna be a distinction between that data, which is truly proprietary and that data, which you know, no one's claiming ownership of it. Um, and so uh, now uh, I would like to see uh, a future where uh, patients own their data and can have a friction-free way of, of allowing it to be used in return for compensation or not allowing it to be used. Currently, hospitals de-identify data and act like they own it entirely. Um, but I'd like to see a future where everyone owns their own data and then for advertising purposes or medical research purposes or whatever, they can frictionlessly say, you can use it if you pay me uh, or don't use it at all. I'd like to see that. And that would be live and ongoing and retroactive. So someone who allowed the data to be used uh, could then say, I no longer want my data to be used. And it would be taken out of future projects and past projects. Um, that would be ideal. I see no movement toward that future, unfortunately. Um, I would like to see that future. I see no movement toward that future. Um, any any thoughts, Max? I mean, in terms of that future, you know, there's just none of the players are incentivized to go that route. You know, the hospitals or data collection services don't want to do that. They're providing, they're collecting this data, and and then the people that are buying it, sure, like if they could get it from somewhere else that's cheaper, I guess they'd do that. And if it was, if it helped reimburse individuals for their data, that's nice, but they just care about having the data. So I, I, it, I don't know if we're gonna get there at least anytime soon. You know, back to the, the question of privacy, I think you really covered it. You know, these LLMs, these AI models, you know, they, they work similarly to any other digital health solution. Um, data is de-identified. Um, if it is, if it isn't, it's used uh, with all the HIPAA restrictions in place. And um, so I don't really see it affecting uh, any of these digital health startups very much. They're all quite aware of how the data needs to be used, stored um, safely. And, you know, it's training some really interesting AI models. That, that's great. And then we have a comment from Mike again, who says, I think Amazon may buy Rite Aid, who just announced bankruptcy. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's very interesting. And Amazon did buy Whole Foods in the past, and they also bought um, uh, 
uh, you know, a, a, a mail order pharmacy company, I'm forgetting its name, um, uh, PillPack uh, in the past as well, which gave them the pharmacy licenses they needed to operate as a pharmacy, among other things. Um, and so you could see another Whole Foods type move by now um, buying Rite Aid, giving them site, presumably giving them, you know, uh, bricks and mortar sites all over the country. So very, very you know, honestly, I would be surprised, you know, Amazon has a history of buying companies that are working, not turning them around. And yes, like Rite Aid has a lot of those physical stores. If Amazon wants to quickly expand, they could do that. Um, but generally they like buying companies that are already working and that they can let do their thing while they start adding Amazon efficiencies to it. So I, I don't think that's going to happen, um, but we, we will see. And I think there's an interesting opportunity for, for someone to buy Rite Aid and bring it back or not because, you know, do we really need another pharmacy besides CVS and Walgreens and all the independent pharmacies, which I don't think I mentioned enough. And uh, so then, uh, and I'm, I'm going to skip some of my uh, items for our show just, just because we're running out of time. Uh, but did you have any news stories you wanted to share with our audience? Sure. Um, I think there are a few that are interesting. You know, there are two different startups focused on loneliness that received funding. One called Thoughtful, which raised $7 million, and another one called Lonely AI, which was founded by the former CEO of Tinder and is using AI chatbot technology to reduce loneliness. And it's an issue that has been talked about now for, you know, a solid few years. And it's come into the public attention that loneliness is really a, an epidemic needs to be solved, especially in older adults. Uh, I am excited to see companies getting uh, funding and starting. I don't know if these models are actually going to last and work. Um, but it is really interesting. Um, so I think that's an interesting thing to highlight. Um, and then, you know, this was actually a few weeks ago, so you may have already covered it, but Main Street Health raised $315 million uh, to expand its services. You know, they really focus on bringing value-based healthcare to rural communities um, and have been doing a really great job at that. And I think is really interesting and also kind of speaks to the other movement that's happening in healthcare besides AI which is value-based care and enabling it and moving into it. Um, and we're seeing a lot of companies uh, being started either to play in there as providers uh, or to provide the kind of plumbing to enable existing providers to participate in value-based care arrangements. Um, I think it's, it's really exciting and a really exciting time to be working in that area. Um, and yeah, I'm really happy to see Main Street Health taking advantage. Yeah, and I, I'd add, so first of all, this the shift from fee-for-service to value-based care, this is the biggest reform of healthcare in our lifetime, and uh, uh, experts disagree on how much we've shifted, but I've heard some claim that we've shifted uh, about 15 points toward, uh, toward value-based care in like 14 years, um, so that, that's about a point a year, which is much slower than anyone thought we would shift toward value-based care back in the days of Obamacare, which was the reform that, that caused us to move to value-based care. And so that slowness has been frustrating. And in I think as technologists, we really like value-based care in the innovation economy because fee-for-service rejects technology. 
what fee-for-service wants to do is hire the most expensive people possible and have them bill at top of license, and then it wants them to not buy technology. Um, uh, and uh, fee-for-value uh, wants to sweep away the expensive healthcare professionals <laughs> and replace them with software and technology. So it's literally the opposite incentive. But if you are in the innovation economy and if you're in software, uh, you, you want to see this continued shift toward value-based care. And it's, it's interesting and encouraging uh, to see companies uh, pursue a value-based approach. And one of the disappointments, I think, is that sometimes you'll have a, a provider organization that was fee-for-service in the past it starts to get contracts that are fee for value and they have weak incentives in them. Uh, so like sharing in profits is a weak incentive, but having to eat the costs of readmission is a strong incentive. Um, and so they'll get most that they'll, they'll be set up for fee for service, not buying a lot of tech, and then they'll get some fee for value contracts that have weak incentives in them. And then they, don't bother to change their tech. And what you and so that's very frustrating. What you want to see them do is shift entirely to fee for value and then rip out all their old tech and replace it with much better new tech. Um, and that has not that's been slow. And so if you if you were building a company to sell into that trend, it's been a very frustrating process. So um, well, good. Well, I'll, if, um, if unless you have anything else, I'll move on to the next uh, section. Sure. So next time I'm moving to conferences. Um, uh, are there any uh, any conferences coming up that you want to call out to our audience? So I'll mention that in Boston, there's a very interesting looking innovation summit in healthcare coming up. It's like a half day conference. It's the American College of Healthcare Executives Conference, their Health Innovation Summit, November 2nd in Boston. Uh, tickets, tickets are 400 bucks. I'll be there. Maybe I'll see you there. I talked to the organizers and they gave me a discount code, Wardell10. If you use that in buying a ticket, you'll get 10% off the ticket price. Um, and you can just go to Eventbrite and look for American College of Healthcare Executives Health Innovation Summit uh, for tickets for that. So that's, so that's one where I may see you there. Um, and then um, uh, I, I haven't been to this conference that's coming up. But I, everyone who's been to it, I know, loves it. It's the CNS Summit is coming up in November in Boston. This is a pharma tech summit. CNS stands for uh, Collaborating for Novel Solutions Summit. Uh, so it's coming up, uh, and uh, it's about innovation in life sciences. Um, uh, and uh, uh, on the, I think there's a lot on the clinical side and some on the commercial side as well. So this is a, a beloved conference that's in Boston this year. Um, and I think it's, I, and so uh, I thought I'd highlight that. And then finally, everyone's now beginning to talk, now that health is over, everyone's now beginning to talk about the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco, second week of, of January. Um, and I think that, that the conference is weaker now than it was before the pandemic, but I think a lot of people are still going, especially young companies that wanna raise money, they want access. All the West Coast VCs are going to be there. A significant proportion of other VCs in the U.S. are going to be there. Uh, and so you literally just write to them in November and say, let's meet at J.P. Morgan. And many of them will, will meet with you. They're all, they're all in meeting mode when they go there. So that's the conferences that, um, uh, uh, and then it also has a record for the most number of cocktail receptions and parties at night, every night uh, in, in digital health. Um, and the conference is actually primarily a, a public life science companies conference but digital health has chosen to, to go there as well, even though we're not part of the official programming put on by the JP Morgan Investment Bank. So 
Um, Max, any, any thoughts on those conferences that I mentioned? Yeah, it's, I, I love the JP Morgan one. It really has been co-opted by all aspects of healthcare, um, not just the life sciences. And again, the great part of it is that everyone goes. So if you're looking to meet someone, you're more likely to be able to meet them there. Um, and if you're trying to run into someone, again, that's probably somewhere that they will be. So it is high value. Many people, if not most, don't even buy a ticket to the conference. They just go and are in San Francisco and attend the myriad of cocktail receptions. Um, I think getting into them is an art, um, but doing so can be quite effective. And, and just to add to that, so um, a lot of young companies are going there to raise money from VCs. A lot of VCs will be there, um, especially if they're West Coast VCs. Um, and then uh, large public companies in healthcare are there. So executives from uh, hospitals are there, executives from health plans are there, executives from pharma are there. But it's very interesting who actually goes. It's an investor conference. So the executives who go from the incumbents, the big companies, the consolidators, is number one, the CEO goes, number two, the CFO goes, the head of investor relations goes, and then maybe the head of corp dev goes, and then the head of the corporate venture fund go. But the people who don't go to that is you typically don't get the innovation execs. They don't go to that. The health plan general manager who might buy your product doesn't go to that. The hospital CIO who might buy your product doesn't go to that. So it's not really um, product purchasers. It's more like, um, you know, you might do a, a corporate development partnership with them or you might get bought by them uh, is, uh, is uh, who goes there. So. Um, so that, that's a little overview of the, of the JP Morgan conference. Um, so Max, any conferences that you're going to, or that you, th you want to call it to the attention of our audience to? Yeah. Um, there are three conferences coming up in age tech that are good to know about. You know, the first one is leading age leading ages annual meeting and expo, which is November 5th to 8th at leading age is essentially a consortium of nonprofit senior housing providers and their expo hall is gigantic and showcases all sorts of things that these uh, senior housing providers are buying. So it's certainly one of the best conferences to go to if you're selling into senior housing. And um, after that comes the Aging Media's uh, new conference continuum, which is December 7th in Washington, DC. You know, the interesting part about that is it's, it's they're really combining all of their different properties to try to create some cross collaboration from senior housing, home health, uh, hospice and palliative care. And um, so it's a newer one and you'll have people there, you know, executives that are thinking about kind of outside the box. So that can be an interesting one to go to, especially if you're looking uh, to cross over into some other areas. And then last, but certainly not least is Mary Furlong's what's next longevity innovation summit. December 12th to 13th, also in Washington, D.C. You know, Mary, Mary has been throwing events in the age tech space for years and years. She just won the Lifetime Achievement Award at Aging 2.0's Optimized Conference a month or so ago. You know, she puts on conferences that everyone at some point gets to in this space. This is a newer one for her, focused a little bit more on the policy side. So, you know, companies that are trying to get more involved with local and especially federal governments, um, this could be a really interesting one for them to go to. 
Great, great. Thank you. And so I, I think I'm going to put some of those on my list. Um, and I, I have a remark from Mike in the audience who says it's, it's, it's too impractical to allow people to pull their data out after it's been used. And so I, I think you're, I think you're right about that. So, um, uh, so that, that probably, that's going to fall on the cutting room floor, the, the idea of, of retroactive revocation of data. Um, and then uh, Alan adds uh, an age tech and longevity tech for neurology. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so, um, uh, which is uh, uh, B-Care Link's um, AI-enabled app for neurology. So that, 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 that that's very interesting. Um, and then, um, Let's see, I'm just, I'm just trying to rapidly go through some more of these. Uh, and, uh, okay, uh, great. So then moving on to our next topic uh, is personal notices. So um, my personal notices are that um, uh, that my next Digital Health Investor Talk is Wednesday, November 1st at 4, and the topic is a check-in on AI in healthcare. And my guest there is uh, Nacho Orlando, who is a, an AI expert uh, from Argentina. Um, and we're going to do an overview of, uh, of what has led us to this point with generative AI and then where is it useful in healthcare. Um, it's got to be one of and, the best names I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, also I've got one of my uh, monthly drinks nights coming up. Uh, so if you're in the Boston area... Um, Thursday, November 9th, 5.30 to 8.30 at the Liberty Hotel Bar at MGHT Stop. Um, uh, we're, uh, and there uh, we have, uh, so Nacho Orlando is going to be here from Argentina, and he'll be speaking at that drinks night on the topic of AI will replace your doctor in five years. So, um, Max, do, do you have any, any personal notices? Uh, only really one to talk about is that my next you know monthly age tech newsletter chronicling deals in age tech will be out in about a week a little over uh, so go sign up at agetech.news that's great yeah so as max mentioned at the beginning of this call he also runs uh age tech news as well and you can sign up for his newsletter so um great well so now we segue into our main topic which is what's next in age tech and so i i guess my my first question there is just um, very broadly, what is the age tech market? Sure. Um, I mean, everyone defines it a little bit differently. You know, over time, even my own definition has expanded beyond just the simple like things for people 65 plus. You know, for us, it really starts when either someone becomes a caregiver for one of their parents or an elderly loved one. Um, technology that's helping innate, helping that, making that easier. That's all age tech. Um, as well as, as I mentioned earlier, kind of fintech and other solutions for people who are starting to think about, you know, retirement or what comes next and do I have enough savings to retire? How can I optimize in my uh, wealth de decumulation instead of wealth accumulation? Uh, maximize Social Security, Medicare, et cetera. Um, so everything from there, you know, into anything that is being sold into or reimbursed by Medicare. 
that is not just straight, like going to a doctor's office. So, you know, as of 2019, Medicare Advantage has been able to reimburse for non-traditional medical uh, procedures and experiences. So everything from transportation to food delivery to, you know, all these other things that we recognize finally, you know, go into affecting someone's health. Um, and so there's been a real boom in terms of companies being funded and founded and, and doing very well in that space. Um, and then anything that is being used by a, any senior care provider, be that a home care, home health, senior living, a skilled nursing, assisted living, memory care, hospice, whether that's on the operations side, whether it's uh, assisting with staffing in one way or another, um, telehealth solutions, uh, as well as things for the actual individuals receiving care or their families um, to improve the experience, to reduce the cost. Um, we saw new models, you know, the one that most people know is PAPA, which ha was implemented by some Medicare plans in, in order to help keep people at home longer. You know, they've had some negative press recently, um, but it still stands that they're kind of opening up a new model um, of how care can be delivered and what type of care. Um, and then it goes all the way to the end. So people call it death tech or end of life tech, you know, whether it's preparing for it legally or financially, um, dealing with it emotionally, you know, anything in that space, that's all age tech. Um, it is quite broad, um, but very underfunded. Um, but that's changing, which is great. Uh, that, that's great. Um, so uh, can you give us a little threat on the history of this? I came across the term first in 2015, thanks to the AARP, who really went out of their way. I thought it was just astonishing that AARP was creating conferences on technology in for aging and I hadn't thought of them in that in that light before and that, that's where I heard it but it's a pretty young sector in terms of being understood as a sector isn't it is, is there a little bit of a history uh, that you can tell us behind that sure um, you know for a long time the sector didn't really have a name that we agreed on at uh, where people were calling it all sorts of different things personally I was calling it silver tech that seemed the best of the bad options it's also Jaren Tech, uh, Senior Tech, all sorts of things, all describing different pieces of the ecosystem that I just described. Um, and then in, as you said, 2015, that sounds like AARP finally found Age Tech, and that's one that we've kind of all gathered around. Um, but it is a youngish area, you know, for a lot of reasons, you know, the biggest one being, um, stereotypes, you know, assuming that seniors can't or won't use technology, something that we saw refuted quite seriously, especially during the pandemic, that when there is a, a reason they people figure it out, uh, older adults included, um, to, you know, they're just not being business models that really made sense um, or that had been successful. You know, you think of venture investors as people taking bold bets and wild risks. But at the end of the day, most investors are quite risk averse and play a lot more follow the leader than anything else. 
So just like, you know, talking about IPO windows, you need that first IPO to happen and do well for the other ones to jump in. It's very similar to venture investing. And so it wasn't really until 2018 when Best Buy acquired Great Call, the maker of uh, the smartphones for older adults for about 800 million, that VCs started to open their eyes to the opportunity and see that there was possibility and see that it can be done and you can get to unicorns or close to it um, in this space. Now, there's been a lot more since then, which has been great. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's really starting to take hold. But I would say we're still in inning one and a half, maybe two of where this is going, especially as baby boomers are turning 65. You know, most people will probably know this fact that 10,000 are turning 65 every day in the U.S. The whole world is aging um, and it's straining our systems, all of them in one way or another, healthcare, financial, uh, all sorts of things. And it, we're really just at the beginning of that. And it's only going to intensify over the next couple decades. And so there's going to be a lot of opportunity to create solutions to help fix that. Yeah. And so the topic that you just mentioned uh, is, 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 literally like at the top of mind of, of the UN and the and Davos, which is that uh, across the world, everyone, every country is aging and often um, they're, they're sicker as they age. So there's a, uh, there's a, a greater uh, burden of disease. So you might have someone who's, who's 70 and who has diabetes, whereas 20 years ago, you wouldn't have expected them to have diabetes. Uh, and Probably wouldn't have and, expected them to live to 70 either. Um, uh, and so uh, there's this is creating all sorts of, of problems we need creative solutions for. Um, uh, so and by the way, I, I think that you mentioned Best Buy. They, they have that has really shocked a lot of VCs. Two things. Best Buy at one juncture has said that it wants to be a digital health store. Um, so you could get your uh, your clinical grade blood pressure monitor at Best Buy or your activity tracker or your uh, telehealth kit that would allow a doctor to look in your ear remotely or something at Best Buy. Um, but it's also said it wants to be an age tech uh, store. So um, and each time so there was something about Best Buy doing that, that was was like dropping a, a, a rock in a pond. Every Everyone noticed when Best Buy uh, wanted to do that. It, be, it was suddenly like it clicked for maybe for investors that, this, that, that there was business here. Um, so um, now what are some trends in age tech that we should know about, that we should follow? You mentioned two ones that really interested me. Uh, the first is that Medicare maybe in the past wouldn't have paid for driving or a meal, but it does today. So that uh, so that's really interesting. Um, a second trend would be seniors and tech and and apps. So uh, it seems to me that an app on a smartphone or an iPad is an outstanding way to reach seniors. And so 10 years ago, we would not have thought of seniors booting up a PC that much. And we would not have thought of seniors, uh, you know, having an, an iPad lying around their home that much. Um, but uh, today, absolutely, uh, at least affluent seniors uh, do this. They're, sa they're savvy with apps. Apps can be so easy. And of course, an iPad never needs tech support. It's always on. It's always up to date. It's always connected. It's personalized. Um, you know, it, 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 and so uh, it has all the, it, it, it's, it, 
it can be social, it can be tied into someone's family. Um, and so that's just such an, an, a, an interesting channel to the senior. Um, and so those are, are, you know, they're not fresh trends, but they're, they're sort of growing trends. Um, and, uh, and any other trends driving um, uh, uh, age tech? And, and for our audience, by the way, if you guys have any questions for Max, feel, feel free to, about age tech, feel free to drop that in the chat. You know, following on from what you were saying of like iPads, uh, really interestingly, uh, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, just a few months ago, published uh, a new rule that all Medicare providers must provide a level of tech support for their populations. Um, and they insisted that this happen by 2024 which is very unusual. Usually they proclaim things that don't go into, into effect for years. So that's really pushing for um, a lot more uh, tech training and savviness among these seniors, which help them use not just you know, their patient portals and things that the Medicare plan needs them to use, but also a lot of these other systems. So I think that's another interesting one. Um, you know, I already talked about value-based care and how that is a trend that we're seeing uh, really take hold in age tech. You know, when I first entered the field, I started looking into it 10 or so years ago. I assumed that senior housing was also senior care. You know, when you move, leave your house and you move into a facility, surely the reason you're doing that is because they have doctors, nurses, et cetera, there um, to help. You know, most of the time that's actually not the case. The assistance that they're giving is generally non-medical, but they are as incentivized to keep their residents happy, healthy, and out of the hospital as a primary care physician, as anyone else. And so there are a, a few companies and more coming every day that are trying to figure out how can we help these senior care providers, these senior housing providers participate in these value-based care arrangements and feed information to the actual care staff to prevent issues, which really is not happening very much these days. So that's an area that's really interesting. Um, you know, for anyone that's interested, you know, on the Medicare side, uh, I'd encourage you to check out all the different categories of, they're called SSBCIs, uh, special services uh, for, the chronic, for the chronically ill. Essentially what they are, are these services that Medicare plans can tailor to individual subpopulations, um, but don't have to provide it to everyone. You know, previously, if Medicare provided some sort of service, they by law would have had to provide it to every single member of that plan, which I understand for fairness in, in some areas makes sense. But, you know, when you're trying to help people with diabetes, it doesn't make sense to offer everyone uh, you know, access to diabetes programs, to special diabetic food delivery services, um, because it's just not what they need. So it's really started to uh, open up all these different sub areas um, and sub needs, which is really interesting. Um, you know, another area that I think is quite interesting and newer, which is great, are direct-to-consumer brands, especially for we'll call them the, the young age, the young old, the young age techers. These are people like in their 
midlife to like maybe up to 70s or so, basically the baby boomers um, who are quite tech savvy. You know, they generally had to use tech and computers at work. They know how to use Facebook, as many of us know with our parents and aunts and uncles using it a lot. Um, and so they can be marketed to similarly as any of the direct-to-consumer brands that are more focused on youth, we'll call it. Um, and so there are a bunch of those that are really starting to take hold, which is quite exciting um, because generally they're underserved and most products are made for millennials or Gen Xers and marketers generally have ignored older adults. But the fact is that older adults control the vast majority of wealth in America and they make of, they're going to pass down a ton of wealth to the next generation. Um, and there are a lot of services that are not suited for them that could be better tailored and a lot of opportunity there. So I think that's another one that's quite interesting. Um, so, and you mentioned, you know, uh, ordinary consumer products that are, uh, have brands and also feature functionality tailored to seniors. And there's a really interesting um, uh, sort of MIT program out there called the, the MIT Age Lab and Agnes. And I'm sure you've, you've seen this demo. Um, I've wanted to try Agnes for so long. One day it'll happen, uh, but go on. I, I'm excited to, to hear more. And so uh, to, just to give our audience an idea of this, in general, at MIT, so there's an actual lab at MIT called the Age Lab. It's similar to the MIT Media Lab. It works with corporate partners, among other things. It has access to grad students who want to make a difference in areas like design or product development or technology or whatever in products. And then it gives the corporations that sponsor it uh, special access to this. But they they had they had trouble um, really communicating to a grad student who might be 27 years old. Um, what it's like to be 80 years old. Uh, and they didn't just want to communicate it, they wanted to generate empathy in the grad student for design. And so uh, so they, they did certain things like um, they built a suit. It looks almost like a construction worker gear or space suit um, that, that a 27 year old grad student wears. And then they go and use the products they're designing wearing the suit. And among other things, it has glasses that are blurred a little. Uh, so this gives you poorer vision. You might have spent your whole life having out, having great vision. Um, and this instantly calls to mind that on a pill bottle, you might not want to have small text on a prescription pill bottle, for example. Uh, and it also attaches uh, rubber bandy cords to your arms and legs, uh, making it hard to, to say, reach, reach up up to, you know, as high as possible. And that would, uh, for example, in the design of a home, um, you know, you might uh, want to stack uh, kitchen cabinets on top of each other and just figure that whoever's there will just stand on their tiptoes to reach into the top cabinet. Um, and this sort of reminds or teaches um, uh, these grad students, uh, you know, to, to bear in mind the, the, the limitations of age or whatever. So, um, uh, so I, that, that, that's interesting that, you know, that they'll, that they will help them have empathy, generate ideas for how to modify a, an ordinary consumer product for, for the elderly um, and uh, give them empathy, you know, and, um, and then help them test them as well. So any, yeah. any other thoughts on the MIT Age Lab and Agnes? No, I think, you know, what Joseph Coughlin has done over there at the MIT Age Lab has been amazing. You know, he wrote a book 
uh, now a little while ago called the longevity economy and um, that really also helped propel this industry forward which is amazing and you know i think what agnes does and hits the nail on the head of why one of the reasons why this industry has been so slow to innovate is that you know the innovators here are generally making products for people that are not like them and that's a really hard thing to do to get out of your own head to put yourself in the shoes of someone who was born decades before you that had a totally different life experience totally different experience with technology um to the point where even like icons are not that are obvious to maybe a millennial are entirely foreign to someone who did not grow up with Facebook or Snapchat or Microsoft Word even uh, and so that has been one of the limiting factors in the success of a lot of these products when you're not when you're making something for someone else that is not you it can be really really challenging and you need to get a lot more feedback on it um which again slows things down so i think that's that's uh, i like agnes i'm really excited to try it on one day um and try to do anything um but it's it's really cool i wish that they had more of them that more entrepreneurs could be uh, playing with and using to help uh, guide their products and uh, for our audience any any uh more questions for max uh and so max what are some of the technologies that you're seeing you know, newish technologies that you're seeing have you think have high potential uh, in age tech and so i'll throw out one which is robotics so robotics you know continues to improve um but in the world of age tech you know i could imagine um that, you know it that uh and so sadly in modern western wealthy countries mm -hmm. Uh, as you age, it's often a relatively solitary experience. You know, you're typically not living in, say, three generations of family all together in one big house. Um, and so robotics can help. You might have had your son vacuum for you. Um, you might have had, uh, you know, uh, your uh, a pet dog and the dog is cared for by a kid or something. Um, and those might have been a little challenging for you personally to do. Uh, because of arthritis or something um, and instead seniors are often living alone um, and so robotics has that interesting capability to help help seniors may just make their lives a, a lot better uh, so for example a, a Roomba to vacuum the, the house you don't have the expense of a professional you don't you're not living with your with your with your adult children and you, the floor needs to be vacuumed so a Roomba could be it but we're also seeing intriguing um, possibilities with uh, robotic dogs as a as a family pet and the robotic dog uh, can be a companion but it could also do things like fetch things um, for you which is kind of kind of funny to think of a form factor of a dog fetching things from you inside your own house uh, or something so funnily enough uh, one of the companies that we invested in and is kind of on the forefront of this is called labrador you can find them at labradorsystems.com However, the form factor is not that of a dog. It is essentially a moving kind of side table or end table that is able mm -hmm. to go around the house and retrieve things, whether it's, you know, blood pressure monitors, food, you know, drinks, or carry things from one room to another, which can be quite challenging 
uh, as mobility as your mobility decreases. Um, and even better, relating to the Roomba, uh, the founders of Labrador previously created the uh, Brava, the mop, the robotic mop, which is like the Roomba, which iRobot then bought and made a, another Roomba. So I think it's it's quite interesting and exciting. That's where I see the most uh, promise for robotics is in helping people just do their everyday tasks. Um, there are also quite a few social robots. So there are the robotic dogs and pets. Those are quite effective, particularly for, with, in people with dementia or Alzheimer's or any kind of mild cognitive impairment because a, it's, you don't have to feed it. You don't have to worry about grandma or grandpa, you know, forgetting to feed it. And it does provide a lot of comfort um, and helps, you know, family, caregiver, whoever it is, do the stuff that they need to do. Um, but then there are also the social robots. You know, the best example is LEQ uh, made by Intuition Robotics, which is kind of like a cross between an Amazon Alexa and an iPad um, that, has a little robot body that can kind of move around and engage again for the purpose of keeping people because it is such a, can be such a lonely and isolating experience to age at keeping them better connected with loved ones and the care teams and whoever else. Um, so yeah, robotics is a, it's an interesting one. I think we're still very early in that. Um, but you know, any, all the things that are, that'll help around the house are generally things that most people would, would want. You know, who doesn't want, you know, a robotic uh, butler? Who doesn't want a robotic dog? Who doesn't want something that'll help make your daily life easier? You know, not just people who are older, have mobility issues. For them, it can be more life-changing. But for the rest of us, it's like fun and cool and frees us up to play more Minecraft or whatever it is that people like to do. And by the way, there's a famous story that's often repeated by the um, iRobot uh, Roomba team, uh, and that product is now is now more than ten years old. Um, but the story is is that they said it was always trivially easy to make a robot as intelligent as the as the Roomba, but it was it was extraordinarily difficult to fit a decent vacuum cleaner inside of that form factor. Um, and so, as we think of robots helping around around the house, uh, it's like the the robots are smart enough to do it. But how do you pick up a remote control off the floor? How, how you know that, that that may be the challenge, not mm -hmm. not having a smart robot or whatever. Um, but so thinking about technologies that you know new technologies that are kind of shocking the system and creating opportunities for seniors. You mentioned robotics. Any other technologies that that you think are going to be uh, you know powerful that, that entrepreneurs in our audience would would want to sort of apply that technology in age tech? Again. You know, the biggest challenge in age tech generally are not, you know, lack of technology or new tech. It's generally more design problems, making making these things work within existing systems um, and for people that may have different uh, comfort levels with technology. That being said, you know, there is a lot of promise for AI, um, I would say, especially on taking away a lot of the administrative tasks uh, that free up. Uh, caregivers to perform, as you mentioned before, like the top of their license, whether that's like interacting with patients more um, or whatnot. You know, there's a huge caregiver shortage, not just in America, but around the world. That's only going to get worse. And so we need technology that will help 
help all these individuals do more with less. And the more administrative burden we can take off them and the more time that we can give them with individuals to provide that kind of human to human care, which is what technology cannot do, uh, the better. And there's a lot of value in there, um, as well as you know anything you can do to help caregivers, um, even outside of the workplace. It is not an easy job and they are not paid nearly enough and there's a ton of burnout. So if there's anything you can do there, really interesting. Um, yeah. That's great. And, and so some other, some other technologies I'll just, I'll just throw out there. Um, and by the way, we, uh, for our audience, any, any last, we're, we're approaching the end of the show. So any last questions you have? So I think one intriguing one is that we're seeing a blossoming of clinical grade home monitoring devices. And so the, the obvious ones would be blood, blood pressure, self-administered self, you know, blood pressure, um, blood glucose, uh, uh, and um, a cardiorhythm uh, detection, uh, monitoring, uh, and others. And so in the past, you would have to um, drive to a doctor's office, park, pay for parking, sit in an exam room, fill out a clipboard, um, <laughs> go and get weighed by a nurse, and then uh, have a clinician take your vitals, maybe talk to a doctor, um, and you got, a, you got an image of a point in time. Uh, and so today, it's very affordable to get a home monitoring device. These days, they're typically uh, wirelessly connected. That could be Bluetooth, could even be cellular. Um, that could be connected to your phone. Um, and so you get a good user interface on seeing your own data. And, it's, and it can be, in certain cases, um, integrated with your physician's EMR. Um, uh, and so I think that's, that's an interesting trend. And that's a more clinical uh, uh, product. It's both age tech and it's also very clinical. Um, mm -hmm. um, and then also I'll throw in, we, we had a few months ago, we had a guest, Jody Holtzman, on the show. And I'm sure you've, you've uh, run into Jody. And he led some of those programs in the past at the AARP getting into age tech. Um, and he, he called out uh, as technology for seniors, voice. Voice is getting really good these days as an interface. You have you you, you have the combination of very good um, uh, uh, computer understanding and transcription of voice, but that's just the beginning. Then you have very good um, natural language um, processing of the voice, so that the computer really understands what you're saying. And then the third interesting piece of this is that now you have. Um, uh, beyond algorithmic responses, now you have generative AI responses, um, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, ho hopefully we get that under control so it's not hallucinating uh, when it's talking to, to seniors uh, or something, but that's potentially a smarter agent than an algorithmic agent. Um, uh, or at least and, feels a little less robotic, um, which is super valuable. Yeah. Um, and that there've been a lot of actually uh, not great stories about generative AI. Uh, so I think there was a story where a New York Times reporter talked to generative AI 
and like it tried to tell him to dump his wife and tried to seduce him or something. Uh, so just 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 wild, wild stuff like that. And then the reporter wrote, wrote this up, um, obviously. Uh, so, um, but so let's see. Um, uh, the uh, so anyway. Um, uh, so uh, I guess one, one a, a couple final questions. One is, um, let's say we have aging parents. What's the coolest thing, the best low-hanging fruit? Um, uh, to me, it would be, you know, get my aging parent an iPad if they didn't have one already. That would be, but any thoughts on cool stuff you've seen, stuff that would have to make a big bang or be low-hanging fruit to get your parent to, to enable them? Sure. I'm actually going to say something that it's, it's less cool, but it's free and there's a lot of value in there. Um, find out what Medicare plan they're on. Even better, help them pick out the right Medicare plan. You know, open enrollment is right now. Um, and find out what benefits they provide and help them use them. There are a ton of benefits that uh, these Medicare services provide. And some of them even provide iPads and to help keep people connected. Uh, some of them provide you know, free exercise, weight training, community, uh, all sorts of all sorts of really interesting things that some of them I wish I had that most people have no idea um, exist. So it's free. Go check out what plan they have. Go look at their benefits and help them actually use them uh, and enjoy them. And again, like it's quite easy to do. That, that's awesome. You know, I, I'm a fan of one of those benefits um, that that could be in your parents' Medicare Advantage plan, which is silver sneakers. Um, mm -hmm. I, I like that product. And uh, a lot of seniors, they may not know silver sneakers is, 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 is with their plan, or they may have had a very nice thought when, at the time they signed up that, of course, they're going to use silver sneakers. And that's the reason to choose that plan. Um, and then they don't use it. Um, uh, but Silver Speakers uh, puts on classes at gyms uh, for, for seniors. Um, uh, and uh, uh, But it's one of those things where a senior could use the encouragement of their adult child to take advantage of, of you know, classes in gyms that, um, uh, that, uh, that they're available for free or nearly free. So, yep. um, hey, well, any, anything else you wanted to, any other message you want to give to our audience? No, I mean, I think we covered a lot of things, which was great today. You know, again, like we're still in the early stages of where age tech can go. We're already seeing unicorns. We're seeing more investment in the space, but there is still a lot of low hanging fruit. Uh, so if you want to do well um, while also doing good, age tech's the place for you. That's awesome. Uh, well, th uh, thank you. And, and thanks for joining the show. Of course. Thanks for having me. So you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with host Stephen Wardell. Many thanks to our guest, Max Zamko. Our next show is on Wednesday, November 1st at 4. The topic is check in on AI and healthcare with our guest, Nacho Orlando. And for our Boston audience, I hope to see you at our next Digital Health Drinks Night on Thursday, November 9th from 530 to 8.30 at the Liberty Hotel Bar. Um, you can you can register for these events and more at my Eventbrite page, stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter to get notice of, of upcoming events. Um, uh, thanks very much. And, and thanks for joining the show, Max.
course. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Yep.